Welcome back to The Live Drop. I'm your host, Mark Valley. My guest is Michael Smith. Uh, he wrote a book called The Anatomy of a Spy. It's not what you think it is. Behave. It's a history of espionage and betrayal. He answers the question, why do people put their lives at risk to collect intelligence? And you've heard of the uh, mnemonic, I guess it's called, mice, uh, money, ideology, coercion, ego. Uh, Michael breaks it up into some other categories. He starts off with sex. There's money, patriotism. Adventures, fantasists, and psychopaths, those are my three favorite. Uh, revenge, the right thing to do, and unwitting agents. Uh, Michael's the one to write this book. He's um, got over a decade of experience with British intelligence. He's a journalist. He's written about Bletchley Park. He has also a book called um, The Secret Agent's Bedside Reader. Um, and he's uh, just an all-around good guy. It was a fun interview. I'm glad to have him. He also was a good sport, and he played along and was the first to answer the Dirty Dozen questions or the dozen dirty decisions i'm not sure what i'm going to call it but um we'll see how he does begin transmission now yeah i just want to say i really enjoy the book anatomy of a spy oh thank you history of espionage and betrayal to in your in your book you've broken down agent motivations into uh sex money patriotism adventures fantasists psychopaths revenge the right thing to do and unwitting agents so i'm just going to kind of pick some examples and we can go from there. I, I like how the title of your book is the anatomy of a spy and your f- first chapter is sex. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Is that coincidental? <laughs> uh, I think it probably, I have people who friends who have said, Oh, you, you started out with sex. So everyone got interested in it. But actually, if you remember from the book, the, the opening talks about Samson and Delilah so that was clearly about sex in his her use of him, and so it seemed natural that you, you go straight in from Samson and Delilah to sex, and it also gave me the opportunity to start off, move it on a bit towards the twentieth century, which is really where I wanted to place most of the spies with um, the American Civil War. So, you know, it worked well that way. And that's the only reason it started with sex. Okay. I'll believe, I'll buy that. You go through the uh, Civil War with those, uh, with that, that was going, I mean, that's fascinating. That's a whole little story in itself, but I, I was interested. I'd never heard of Operation Diamond where um, in the late sixties, Israeli, um, All right. Yeah, they seek yeah, out intimate relationships with the Iraqi pilots from the Hashemite Iraqis. This was during the actually it was before the Iran Iraq War. This is in the late yeah, yeah, yeah. This is before the Iran Iraq War, and America and Iraq are fine. Um, the previous regime had um, been close to the Soviets, so it had got a number of these. Um, you know, the latest uh, Soviet aircraft, and um, the Israelis wanted to get one. MiG-29, I guess. It was yeah. That. yeah, yeah. I, I'm just wondering why this isn't a movie. I mean, there were f- pilots. Let me run through it real quick. So these pilots, they were, were they invited to the United States, to San Antonio? Yeah, Texas? they were being training. They were be, being trained there. Um, and so it was um, a sort of routine visit, which had been cut off, obviously, when they were allies with the Soviet Union. Um, and now you know, America is trying to rebuild its relationship with Iraq. So you start having this cross-pollinization where your know, Americans go over and, and, and do things alongside the Iraqis, helping them out, as indeed they are now, of course. And the um, Iraqis go over and they 
go through training with not obviously not on their particular aircraft, the MiG twenty nine pilots. So, but it's um, a much more. This is how we do things, and um, the Americans therefore getting them so that they can work alongside them. That's the sort of point of all these cross pollinization um, courses and meetings and transfers and exchanges, exchange visits, really. So while they're there, Mossad sends in a couple young ladies, um, watches them, sees which bar they go to, and the young ladies seduce them. And then they start offering various ones of them uh, the chance to bring across a MiG-29 to Israel. And the first one refuses it. And obviously, you know, this is something Mossad can't, they can't then allow him to continue because he's going to go back and tell his bosses, um, you know, the lights go out in the bar and bang. And when the lights go back on, the guy's lying there dead on the floor. I'm curious about the planning for that operation as well. I mean, they must have thought ahead and said, well, what if they turn them down. Yeah. I mean, somebody was sitting at a table saying, well, we'll kill him. What if the next guy, well, we'll kill him too. And what if the next guy, <laughs> we'll kill him. We really well, want you know, it, a MiG-29. Yeah, you know, they they did a lot of work there and eventually they got one to come over and he's in Germany and um, he, um, with his with his newfound girlfriend, who is obviously a Mossad agent, and um, he changes his mind. So he's on a train in Germany and um, suddenly gets flung off it. So eventually they get the guy who, who will do it. And a really, really astonishing story to have flown a MiG-29 out of Iraq and through Jordanian territory to, to Israel. Um, astonishing. And as you say, it was the stuff of movies. You know, um, if came up with the script for this, people would say, oh, no, that would never work. <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, apparently, he used like some sort of zigzag pattern to try to yeah. even evade his own radar before, or make it look like a training mission before he cut over. But yeah. I was interested in that operation because they—that was another, you know, motivation, I suppose, that they were looking for, which was just the will to live. <laughs> With the last <laughs> guy, it seemed like they more or less threatened. They said, "Well, let's look what here's what happened to the last three guys who turned his three pilots yeah, yeah, down. Yeah. Do you want to reconsider?" It's not something that. It's not something that MI6 um, or the CIA would would do. I think you know, notwithstanding you know the Jason Bourne movies and such like, um, it isn't that sort of stuff that really we would do. But certainly the Russians would do it. Obviously the Israelis would do it. I've no doubt the Chinese would do it, and possibly others. But it's not the sort of thing that the British would do. It's not the sort of thing that, other than during war in extremists and stuff like that. And, you know, it's interesting. Everyone says Ian Fleming wasn't proper intelligence officer and he was just in naval intelligence. He wasn't like MI6, but he was naval intelligence liaison with M- with MI6 during the Second World War. And during, the, during wartime, people are entitled to kill people. I mean, CIA guys in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya in you know, the recent troubles, um, and obviously Syria, you know, and MI6 guys as well, you know, if they get into trouble, there's no way that they can get out of trouble without using weaponry. And you know, obviously, 
in really dangerous stuff. They will have special forces alongside them who will do most of that. But both MI6 and CIA train people who are going to be in that sort of area to um, use weapons if need be. So, yeah, killing people can happen, but um, it, peacetime, no, would never do it. You also mentioned the, the honeypot operations that, I mean, Marcus Wolf spearheaded in um, West Germany. Gabriel Gast is a prime example of someone who was, you know, Romeoed by this unassuming Stasi HVA yeah. agent. And uh, it's just, it's really sad. One of the things that struck me that was consistent throughout is they, is they told these agents that in order to recruit someone from West Germany, they had to make her feel like an equal. <laughs> it's, it seems like, uh, I'm just wondering what that class was like, you know, where, where they, uh, yeah. where they had to learn how to treat women as, as equals. And apparently Marcus Wolf trusted her enough to let her choose what information she thought was, was, was important. I mean, I imagine there's some, I imagine there's some agents that you can empower with that sort of, and you can empower with that kind of choice or you can control them closely. If you wanted to comment on that. Yeah. Well, I think Gabrielle Guest was, um, very brilliant operation, really, because she wasn't in the German intelligence services when when she was actually first picked out. She was a student. She was she want she decided to do a, a sort of feminist doctorate on women in East Germany and how life affected them in East Germany um, in terms of work. So how they how they were treated and. Obviously, she didn't know whether they would let her in, you know, and they, she wrote to them and it was looked at, the case was looked at, and her professor, her supervisor, was a known recruiter for German intelligence. The Stasi will have been looking at it two ways. Is she actually trying to penetrate us or is she, is she just someone who's potential? Because if she is someone whose potential for us, then we've got a way of getting you into the intelligence services through her supervisor, you know, get her to push herself forward. The whole thing then is set up with this guy who um, is her driver and actually becomes her lover. And he's East German guy who's driving her around. She thought, this is wonderful. They're treating me really well. They've given me a driver and a car to drive me around. And um, as I say, the relationship becomes um, a relation, a sexual relationship, and they, um, and then gradually they ease her in, and you know he's treating her very respectfully, and as you say, like um, as you would expect them to do, because clearly with the way she's working on what she's writing for her doctorate and really searching for a doctorate, it's a subject that interests her. Um, they're going to treat her like um, that. And so there's a sexual relationship. Then she's shocked when it's revealed to her that, um, you know, they want her to spy for them. And, and she's upset about this. And there's a classic way of getting them in saying, well, actually all we need is, just a little bit, you know, nothing important. We don't want anything that would, you know, breach any German secrets. And gradually she's eased through and she's classic in sense of motivation because, first of all, she's doing it because of her lover and because she wants to continue this relationship. And gradually it becomes ideological. So 
he's no longer as necessary to the whole operation as he was initially. And that's one of the great problems with that sort of operation. And Wolf did actually specialise in this, obviously. And there were a large number of women, usually women in their 30s, 40s, who were single, hadn't got a relationship, and therefore were looking for someone, um, would be interested in someone, and were you know, interested in when someone showed interest in them. And they were sort of really relatively easy targets for these East German guys. I think, you know, the fascinating thing for me about Gast is that she becomes so ideologically tied to East Germany that she is, as Wolf, you say, Wolf trusted her to to find, um, to pass the right intelligence over because she has become, she's got herself recruited into West German intelligence. She's become one of the BND's most senior officer, officers, the highest ranking female officer. She's in a really good position to gra- grab loads and loads of intelligence, not just from the Germans, but material that's been passed to them by liaison services like MI6, like the French, like like the CIA. And she is passing top secrets to, to the Stasi, and it's um, amazing. Was she under the um, assumption that it was, was there a false flag thing going on? That was a different operation. There was, which is in the book, it's a demonstration of, okay. of one of those types of operations. Um, and that was um, a German to Swedish or something. He he claimed to be Danish and Danish. um and the Germans uh, weren't allowing him to have um, information. They were holding it back, and he's on the same side. and And so yeah, that was false flag. Yeah, but they were East Germans as well that were doing that. Yeah, Gabriel Gast. She's still alive. Yeah, lives in Bavaria, near Munich. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some other, I wanted to talk about, you know, with this one guy, Ronald Pelton, like life after, because you said that he was paroled in 2015. I mean, Ronald Pelton was an American, worked at NSA, betrayed some SIGINT and encryption information, actually some pretty important stuff. But he was, uh, I guess he was a walk-in. And yeah. I'm, just, I'm just wondering, I know they're usually suspect, but do you handle walk-ins differently? I mean, they they automatically have... um a motivation <laughs> right if, if they're legitimate but you just don't um, know what it is well they have a motivation um it might be revenge it might be you know anger or um something that's happened to them um it might be that um that you they they just need money you know, and very frequently that has been the case um but Walk-ins have a variety of reasons for doing it. Um, sex wouldn't normally be one of those. It would really fit into a walk-in. But um, certainly revenge, certainly ideology, certainly the right thing to do, um, and certainly money um, are key motivations for walk-ins. Um, yeah, uh, Pelton... Um, you asked me where he was now. I think you know. And you said he's on parole. He's on parole, and yeah, yeah, he he's seventy nine now. So you know, 
he's not dead yet, but you know, he he would be one of the most vulnerable, I guess, at the moment with coronavirus. Um, yeah. And when you when you're a man, particularly, you get to that age. You know, it's quite often you you would um, be suffering with dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that. I don't know is the simple answer, even where he is. Well, he's a free man with a handful of cash and a motorcycle or something, right? He's <laughs> yeah. He spent a good amount of time in prison. He's, yeah, maybe he's working his way through his bucket list. I don't know. Patriotism. You said that the SIS tried to insert Eastern European emigres back into their home countries. It seems like they were, they were trying to make connections with dissidents and maybe even, uh, you know, plant you know, agents in there longer term. But I guess the question is, did the SIS or CIA ever run an illegals program, kind of like the Soviets had during the Cold War? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, that's very common. And when we're talking about patriotism, yes, particularly in the late 40s and early 50s, there was a lot of work done with Eastern European Soviet emigres. Some of it worked better than people give it credit for, but by and large, it wasn't as successful. There were security issues. Emigre communities are very talkative to each other. They, you know, they feel that bond of the old country and need to keep thinking that they're doing something, some of them. And, you know, the Albanian um, operation that a lot of people blame Kim Philby for giving away. Uh, Philby obviously was informing on that, but he wouldn't have had the operational detail where he was on when people were going in precisely. I Most of that was insecurity, uh, lack of security, because the emigres that were being recruited were just too talkative, just too willing to tell other people. And their whole communities were penetrated by the NKVD or the KGB later. And so it was, um, it was, the whole thing was potentially insecure. And if you you look at the Albanian um, operation, for example, they had a disastrous year in 1951, um, October 1951, and Philby is already out of the picture by now October 51 disastrous so they completely changed the program around and started recruiting much better agents and much better training and you know really reinforcing stuff really keeping them compartmented so they didn't talk about what they were doing Um, and then the operation the next year 52 no one died no one was captured you know, they had a small, relatively small number of operations. It wasn't a huge operation at any one point. Valuable, as it was called by the British, or fiend by the um, by the Americans, later Obopus. That operation, that's using uh, patriotism. But the CIA and MI6 in particular, when they're trying to infiltrate a country, which is difficult to infiltrate China, Russia, Soviet Union, generally, um, the Eastern Bloc, um, when it existed, Iran, you North Korea, classic example, they will just tap up businessmen that go in there routinely. That's great because they've already established you know, their credentials um, in that country, not being a spy, and tap them up and say, just try and find out what you can about this. But, you know, not doing it in any way, not doing like James Bond. You know, if you're going into North Korea, 
you know, just walking down the street, you will find information, you know, in, in, in Pyongyang that is useful to, to the CIA or to MI6. So, um, you know, brief them what the, on what you're looking for and send them in routinely as their normal part of their normal job. You know, they go in when they would normally go in. They come back and they're debriefed, having been better informed as to what people were interested in prior to their going in. They come out, they're debriefed, and they come up with information that you wouldn't otherwise have had. Of course, you know, there, there can be occasions, and Penkovsky was one of them, Oleg Pen- Penkovsky, um, where um, a businessman actually does come into contact with someone who wants to pass information over. But by and large, most of these operations are um, businessmen doing their job and finding information along the way without actually putting themselves too much at risk. And they do that for patriotism. Richard Kuklinski. Yeah. He yeah. never accepted cash, patriotism. I mean, his, his, it almost seems like his was patriotism and his own safety, his own family yeah. safety as a consequence of what he did. Yeah. Um, I think they tried to offer him money, which made me think like, do they, you would probably want to have as many, seek out as many motivations in an agent as possible, right? Just to try to weave the web a little bit thicker. Yeah, the, the Russians would do that. When you've got an agent, what you want, the prime thing you need to develop is a relationship of trust. I always compare it to someone who you get on with really well, you know, that you, you, trust them and they trust you and i think that's part of the skill of agent running is to actually get close to the person you're running and um, in kuklinski's case the cia officer running kuklinski i would say that was a perfect operation you know the way he ran kuklinski kuklinski absolutely trusted him and for very good reasons the problem always for an agent is that there will be gainsayers. There will be people who, for whatever reason, as there are in any organization, you know, if someone comes in with something good, people say, oh, well, it's not as good, or you know, they pick forward of it, and there's nothing wrong with people going over something and uh, and and saying, Oh, well, I think actually that's wrong, or you know, doing that in a legitimate way, but people will do it. Um, purely for a personal political, um, in-house political way to push their own point of view, whatever. And so an agent runner, a handler will very often be one of the few people you know, that that agent can trust within that organization. So you don't want to let the agent know that, or you might in some circumstances in order to give him um, increased motivation or her mo- increased motivation. But um, by and large, you want to protect them from that. And the handling of Kuklinski, and I go into it in some detail in the book, really, because I'm looking at really from the motivation and the agent and how you keep the agent together rather than the grander story of the fantastic stuff he provided, which was fantastic at a key moment in history. I think that agent was, you know, the agent was handled perfectly by the CIA. I think it was David Ford. Yeah. David Ford. Yeah. 
Kukinski, you know, is a great story. It's a fantastic story, amazing story. But it is very definitely about patriotism. You know, he's doing this for the good of his country. He he discovers, you know, um, because he's on, you know, the the top staff. He and, and planning. He he discovers that um, Poland is effectively going to be sacrificed if 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 necessary by by the Russians um, in any war, and. Um, you know, he's doing it for very patriotic reasons. And the interesting thing is that once, because obviously he was, he was exfiltrated with his family, taken back to the States and lived in the States for a while. After the war went down and after Poland stopped being a communist country, there was um, a significant number of people who thought Kuklinski was still a traitor, you know, that he'd been a traitor. Um, and it, it's bizarre that in you know a country like Poland could become democratic and still be you know thinking that he was a traitor when actually he was working for Poland as it is now really in a sense you know a free Poland or what Poland would have been under a democratic system um, against the Soviet Union rather than against his own yeah it yeah. gradually got much better and and he was recognized but initially you know it was um, He's a traitor. You know, he should be brought back and tried. It's kind of a jump to say that the Vatican Intelligence Bureau was involved, but is do they really have their own intelligence bureau, like Santa Alianza or the entity, or is this just... Uh... Uh, they did. Um, I'm not an expert on the Vatican Intelligence. I mean, there, there are people who are. Um, but, um, you know, it is true that um, it was the Vatican that leaked to the fact that he was, um, that, well, not Kukunsi personally, but there was a, a source, and that led to Kuklinski and ultimately to his exfiltration. But that, um, again, that story, you know, is just so Cold War, so Moscow rules being applied, you know, cars going past meeting places and then, it's not safe, recognizing it's not safe when even the guy who is on the street waiting doesn't know it's not safe and, and driving off and, you know, the guy then knows, you know, it's not going to happen or whatever, or they go around the block a couple of times to check. Um, all of that Moscow rules type stuff was is in that Kuklinski. Um, I... I think it's a great story. It's a great Cold War spy. And he was a very, very important spy. You know, that's the thing. And one of those um, that doesn't really get as much attention as perhaps he should, you know. Um, Penkovsky obviously was brilliant. So was um, Gorjevsky. Um, but um, Yeah. That's interesting about Kuklinski because, I mean, there's an irony there that people think that he's a traitor because, sure, he gave up the Warsaw Pact plan, but the important part of it was was what he'd revealed was that the Soviets had planned on marching right through Poland, which mm. would have resulted in, like, tactical nukes going off all over Poland. Mm. I mean, it would have destroyed. Yeah, well, they had no choice to march through, yeah, but but um, it was all it was all um pretty much Warsaw that they'd written Poland off basically. They knew Poland would be, you know, destroyed by tactical nuclear weapons. And where were you then in the mid eighties? Yeah, I was I was in Germany up until eighty one and certainly some of the Polish stuff was going on there. 
Um, and then um, I spent a year in England training, really, training people. And um, then I went to the BBC monitoring service where Poland was still a big thing and we had a huge Polish team there. Um, and that was the equivalent of BBC monitoring service was – um, a pseudo intelligence organization basically um, it was the sister partner of foreign broadcast information service which um, until fairly recently was part of the CIA um, so it was um, it was an interesting time yeah I, Poland has been of interest to me um, for some time yeah oh so you were working something like Radio Free Europe or Voice of America or one of those radio stations? No, no, I wasn't. No, BBC Monitoring Service listened in to um, radio broadcasts of television programs around the world. Um, and obviously during the solidarity crisis, um, which extended right through the 80s, really, uh, early 80s, yeah, Poland was one of the countries that people were most interested in. And rather like GCHQ and NSA split the world up into spheres of BBC and FBIS did exactly the same thing. And um, Poland and much of Northern Europe was um, was a British obligation and, and Britain um, did most of the um, monitoring of that. Indeed, they did. Soviet Union as well. So um, most of the Soviet Union was monitored by the BBC rather than the FBIS. That's really the actual transcription of it. Obviously, the reporting from it was done by both sides. I spoke with a woman who uh, worked at a radio station there, but she also, um, with her husband, made these kind of small little radio transmitters where they would kind of, you know, announce what was going on and and it had a radius of maybe two or three city blocks or something like that. And they would go and set these radio stations up from a van. And she showed me one. She actually made it in front. I mean, you have to hook it up to obviously a battery and a, you know, an antenna, but um, a radio, you could hold a radio station in your hand. essentially. Yeah. So, and did you, were you able to listen in on any of those? Was that no, 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 because that's as you, know, as it implies, it's short range. So, right. um, we uh, we were listening into stuff that um, most of which could be medium wave or um, long wave transmissions, and sometimes as as that era went on, we would have uh, remote sites where you're listening to VHF as well. So um, Berlin was somewhere where you could have an outpost. Eventually, they even had an outpost in Moscow. I'm not sure how that worked. I'd long left. Um, it doesn't seem to me to have ever been a great idea. But So in the 80s, we did have at least some people who were transmitting things. I mean, we, we did have dissidents or informants in, in the East behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah. And what were their motivations? Ideology, the right thing to do, and patriotism. Yeah, all three of those sort of merge really with the emigre communities. Having said that, you know, in the 1940s, 1950s, some of them would have been as motivated by money and influence and, you know, being someone important, feeling that they're important. Um, it's interesting because that was, you know, that was something that a lot of spies did feel. Some of the aims, for example, you know, it made him feel important at what he was doing, you know, um, Philby made him feel like he had 
he had more knowledge than anyone he was talking to at work. You know, he was cleverer than that. That's not his only motivation. His motivation had been originally ideology. And then how does it go? You know, you stick with the ideology because that's all you have left. You can't break out of that sort of relationship with the KGB because they have too much on you and they'll use it. Yeah, you mentioned something in your book that struck me with a couple of different agents. And it wasn't so much that they felt like they were the smartest person in the room or they felt important. I imagine it would fall under under, you know, ego on the mice, the moniker, whatever. But you mentioned a couple of times that they just felt valued. <laughs> Which I thought, oh my God. I mean, you don't have to pay you know, there doesn't have to be this the $2 million spy. Yeah, well, you know, it's one of the reasons people, I think, you know, that was partly a motivation with, with Ames, actually. You know, he wasn't, he saw himself as a much better spy than the CIA saw him as. And there had been this security breach where he'd managed to read his father's file, and his father had been a very similar position. And he didn't feel valued at all there. But once he's in a relationship with the Russians, obviously they value him because, you know, he's a guy who's in position to give them loads of stuff. So, yeah, I think that was part of the motivation initially for going over to to spy for the Russians, although money in his case was a huge, was a huge incentive. And um, I think he probably paid more than anyone else um, that we know of. Aside from the fact that, you know, betrayed a dozen people, which result, resulted in I mean, yes. performance, just, just deaths. I mean, so much, so many people just dying as a result of what he did. There, there's some sort of pathos in that. I mean, finally, he, you know, he finally got his, he finally went to a dentist <laughs> it, it fixed his teeth you know he got a he got a nice car you're thinking oh you shouldn't have to be a spy just to take care of yourself so that brings me to aldrich ames and, and robert hansen as well they were both recruited by victor chikash and i know we've sort of touched on this a little i would say like the motivations of a good handler is like you know you want to protect your asset you want to build their trust but what was it about Shikashin that made him made him so so good? What are, what are the characteristics or abilities of a really good handler? Well, I think with Shikashin, he was actually lucky, really. You know, and <laughs> and and that's um, he took over Hansen, who you know, had been run by the GRU before, not KGB, and and both of them were essentially Ames and 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 Hansen were walking, so. He was lucky. He he just got two great spies. I mean, as um, from the Western perspective, they they were dreadful spies. You know, Hanson Ames. They gave up so much. They killed so many people. But from the Russian perspective, fantastic. But even Cherkashin doesn't get treated that good as a result of having these. You know, handling these two guys. You know, he doesn't. Um, his life doesn't go perfectly thereafter. Oh really? Well, no, he's not. Um, he's not um, as highly respected as he should be when he gets back to Moscow. Why not? I don't know. Maybe they said, "Well, you were just lucky," you know, because you know, in any organization, and an organization like the KGB, you have rivals. You have people who are politically trying to do themselves up and and you down. You know, I don't know why he wasn't. You know, why he isn't much more of a hero. So I wanted to ask you this. I'm an actor. You know, I'll just talk about motivations and, you know, intentions and so forth. It, it just reminds me of the Stanislavski method, 
who was like a Russian director in this this group theater in the 20s that came to the United States and introduced this whole method of acting that led to Marlon Brando, naturalism, all this other stuff. But it's really kind of an, he really had an, you know, kind of an iconic look at analyzing a script from an actor's perspective. You could actually break down human behavior into overall wants and needs. And then what are your individual objectives, you know, in individual scenes or individual uh, I, I just wondered if if you knew of any, uh, you know, agents, assets, or, or handlers, or anybody in, in the business who had uh, taken acting classes. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea. I mean, I think what I would say about this, and mice, and um, you pointed out to me you know, that there was an article in the in-house CIA magazine talking about rascals, which is more of you know business um, sales thing of how you influence people and i can't remember what rascals stood for but um come back to that thing that it's about relationships it's about friendships or or relationships when we you you and i now are talking to each other we're modifying automatically and but even without thinking it about it at times but sometimes thinking about it we're modifying how we behave to each other so that we've got the best possible relationship going on between us. And that's really how it works. And, and gotta, you've got to be perceptive. It's how it works as a, an agent um, handler that you've got to have. Um, it's how it works as an agent yeah. handler. You have to be perceptive. You have to pick up on the nuances. Um, you have to spot when an agent's motivation is perhaps changing or fading and maybe substitute it with something else. Sex is not a great, it really isn't a great thing to have as a motivation because sex over time dies away. You know, if it's all about sex, people get bored with a relationship. You see it in marriages. If there's only sex in the marriage, the marriage will eventually fall apart. It also requires one person, it ties that one person down to doing that particular job for as long as it takes. Whereas, actually, you want a motivation that's more accessible. I mean, money isn't, money has its flaws, you know, because you get people producing the information you want for the money and not necessarily the information not necessarily being true. They just know this is what you want, so they give it to you. But it has that bonus that when the operation is over, when there's no need for that person, you can easily stop the relationship just by not giving any more money. But you need to be perceptive as to what the motivation is. You need to understand why someone is doing something and i think that's a basic human capability obviously psychologists do it um, in much more detail but most of us do it in our day-to-day interaction do you find in your day-to-day interactions where you might suss out someone's motivations why they're doing something yeah i i do think i mean i have to say i was never a case handler myself i never did that in the field stuff at all. I was um, much more about intelligence reporting on different fields, actually, you know, in different fields. But I do, as a journalist, I did do it. You know, I had sources and I ran sources and you needed that same relationship of trust with the source, I felt. I mean, there are journalists who would go out and they would just use 
a source and that's it. Um, but I tried to develop sources who would come up with stories time and time again. And if you're doing that, you know, you've got to have a relationship of trust and they've got to believe that you will, you will do what they want, what they want out of this, they will get. But equally, you know, the relationship has to be a two way street. You have to be able to make sure that you get what you want out of it. And, um, not be manipulated by them for various reasons because of your own motivations, which are to get the story, to get the intelligence. Well, I'm definitely getting some intelligence from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, I think. <laughs> yeah. No, I hope this doesn't sound appropriate, but I just have to say you really sound like you know what you're talking about. Well, I've studied it extensively. And, you know, if you work in intelligence, you understand intelligence. So, yeah. And as a journalist, as I say, you know, um, it's a very, very similar job, uh, even to the extent that you know, some of the some of the terms are you know, exactly the same. You know, we as a I sat on the Telegraph's foreign desk for a while, a um, couple of years, and we have correspondents in major cities. But where we didn't have a correspondent, we would have a stringer someone who would produce stuff when you needed it. Um, they would have other strings to their bow, but they were, they were known as stringers. And exactly the same thing happens where CIA doesn't have a station. They'll have a stringer. Um, MI6 use the same word. Um, MI6 also talk about sending someone in who is, you know, experienced officer into that sort of place where there's only a stringer. Um, and call him a fireman. And that's precisely a term we as foreign correspondents, a foreign desk of a newspaper, um, if we send a senior reporter in to cover a place where we've only got a stringer and the story's that big, we need someone of a bit more nous and experience as a journalist in there. Um, we call them a fireman too. So, and sources, obviously, you protect your source, you know. Mm-hmm which is fundamental for both journalism and intelligence. I just made this up. You're the very first participant of the dozen decisions to suss out agent, <laughs> to, ah, to suss out motivations, right? Go on. Um, you basically just have a choice, A or B. If you don't know what it is, you, you can ask, but you can just choose. Americans or Homeland? A homeland. Le Carre or Len Dayton? Le Carre. Stripes or Solids? Solids. Sandbaggers? Or the prisoner? Sandbaggers. Ludlum or Clancy? Ludlum. Surveillance or counter surveillance? Surveillance. Crunchy or smooth? Smooth. Covert. Can or I clan- change my mind? <laughs> no, it's too late. <laughs> yeah, you can. No, you can change your mind. No, yeah. crunchy. Definitely crunchy. Definitely crunchy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, covert or clandestine? Um, clandestine. Beirut or Berlin? Berlin. Black bag or burn bag? Black bag. Wow. You're a risk taker. Matrokin files or Stasi files? Stasi files. And the last question, live drop or dead drop? Dead drop. You're right. They are a little more reliable. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. I don't really know what that means yet, but I'm going to send it to my analysts. And uh, <laughs> we're going to have. We're going to have. I love crunchy out. or smooth. I love that. <laughs> I like that you changed your answer to of all the questions. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know why even why, why I said smooth because it's very definitely crunchy. You've got to have crunchy. You got to have crunchy. 
right? <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, thanks. Thank you very much, Michael. This has been uh, this has been really fun. Thanks for being on the live drop. That was my conversation with Michael Smith, who's the author of The Anatomy of a Spy, A History of Espionage and Betrayal. I wanted to recommend a couple other podcasts that I'm listening to right now. One, Cold War Conversations. It's uh, Ian Sanders. And, of course, there's also Chris Carr's uh, Dry Cleaner Cast, which I'm enjoying. Um, another one to check out is called American Diplomat. Real Diplomat, interviewing other dip, former diplomats and talking about stories around the world, their challenges and experiences. That's pretty much it. If you like the show, go ahead, subscribe, rate us on iTunes, uh, give me a whole bunch of stars if you want. And if you got comments, the live drops on Twitter, on Instagram, and Facebook, the live drop podcast is probably easiest just to send me a message that way. That's it. End of transmission. Transmission.